Dishing It Out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Cully and Sully. Tastes like homemade. Grab a Cully and Sully for soup season. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dishing It Out with me, Gary O'Hanlon. And me, Gareth Mullins. And coming up on today's show, we have one of the hottest young chefs. I don't even know if he's young anymore. Actually, no, he's don't not that young. No, he's in his 30s <laughs> now. He's an old man. Mark Moriarty, the assassin in the kitchen and the golf course. He sickens my happiness. But a good pal of Gareth's and I, we're really looking forward to catching up with him. We'll have listener questions. And as always, we'll be getting into the gadgets a Go Loud original brought to you by Cully and Sully. Big thanks to them. Uh, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Okay, so it's Gadget of the Week time. Gareth, what are you going with this week? Uh, I'm going to go for a little thermometer that goes inside your oven. So like last week I done, uh, done the weighing scale. So I just see more and more questions coming at me about bacon. And if you are venturing into the world of bacon, so much about precision and, you know, and I, I suppose that's what I think people are trying to get off us. Of. So uh, it will have on your most of your ovens that, uh, like your temperature, obviously you set it to 180 degrees or 190 degrees or whatever it is. But after a little bit of time, your oven door seal will start to lose a bit of temperature yeah. on you. And look, if you're roasting a chicken, it's not the end of the world. But if you're baking bread or you're baking a cake or you're making a sponge... And, and you wonder why it's not... You wonder why it's not... It and it might be just something as simple as if you just have... You can buy these little ones that clip onto your rack. That's right. And you can look through the glass and that'll tell you exactly what temperature the oven is at. They're not expensive. They're, mm. you know, eight or ten quid you'll pick one up for. And if you are getting into the world of... Uh, you see, in a professional kitchen, there's a preventative maintenance program on all your equipment. So somebody's coming in and testing all that for you in a professional environment. But at home, yeah, and they you know, re- they recalibrate the oven all, all of that the time. Yeah. Stuff goes on, so you kind of take it for like when you've an oven and work that you've paid twenty grand. If it's telling you it's one hundred and eighty degrees, it's one hundred and eighty degrees. But at home, I actually have changed the seal in my oven a couple of times at home because I use it so much. But mm-hmm. I would say not a very expensive gadget, but something that's very very useful, especially if you're entering into the world of any type of bacon or any type of that type of cookery with your kids or whatever. So and. Anywhere where you can bring an extra little level of precision into your cookery will always, always benefit you. Yeah, good one, yeah. For me, I'm going to go with a knife block. And what I mean by that is just... I always remember this guy many, many years ago. I did a show... I think it might have been for Aldi or somebody at Taste of Dublin, but there was a guy there from England selling knives, but right beside them, Flint and something was the name of the knife company, but he had this block, and it was just like... A flint box really for the knives you just jab the knives right into it the blades were protected whatever sort of sticky little magic that was in them <laughs> and i thought it was brilliant you know and i remember like i broke it last summer actually and and i was driving me crack because all my good knives now are in a, a we're in a drawer for a while and you know you put your hand in the knives are super sharp you're trying to rumble through to get the one that you want. I'd be nervous about the likes of that there. So I replaced it as, as quick as I could again. And and for the few weeks that I didn't have it, it was driving me cracked. You know what I mean? So a nice, good... Again, think about the size of your kitchen countertop. I mean, I'm lucky enough that I have a nice big island in the kitchen and I can put it in the middle. It's not in anybody's way. It's not in Annette's way. She's not annoying me about it. And it's not... You know, if you've got a tight space or if you're in an apartment, a magnet strip, 
was about to is, say is we actually, used them in work. Well, a magnet strip is actually my preferred one, but just the layout of my work. kitchen doesn't work. Like I have no high presses or I've I've nothing to put it on well, top of on the island. So I need I need the flint box or the knife box on on on. Plus, the you want to show off your fancy expensive knives sitting up in the middle of that. Oh yeah, area, don't you? Yeah. And there is a wee bit of that going on too. You know, the, the wee handle, the wee wooden handle sticking out. And some go, oh, what's that there? It's like showing off a car. I love that shit. Yeah. So again, if you if you have you know your your cooker in a wall or an apartment or your kitchen and your worktop goes back backed onto a wall, a magnet strip is actually brilliant for it. Um, so for me, magnet strip or knife block, but somewhere safe to keep your knives is an absolute must. And it'll keep them sharp and up out of the way. So when you throw them into a drawer, they tend to knock off each other and you will, that will take the edge off a knife yeah. very quickly. Yeah. So having it up on a strip or into a block is definitely the way to go. Some of them knives are over a thousand blips a piece. Like, mm. You know what I mean? Everybody's got a couple of, maybe not everybody, but There's not most, many people spending a thousand euros now on a knife. Well, actually, I would say a lot of houses are spending good money on a couple of one or two decent chopping knives. No? Yeah, yeah, not that, but I mean that's high, high end. That's yeah. that's Gary O'Hanlon money. That, oh, I don't <laughs> yeah, I should stay quiet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buy some cheap ass knives and put them wherever you want. <laughs> said to Gareth before Christmas you know this is a food podcast any chance we could chat to a <laughs> chef or two so uh, we hadn't realised that we we uh, hadn't been speaking to anybody so we put the heads together and there was only one man that came up for our first interview um, fresh from working and helping the greenhouse to two Michelin stars uh, a brilliant TV ser- series off duty chef Forbes 30 under 30 a good 15 years in kitchens now, a top, top dog, a young chef of the year, winner no less, but the biggest achievement of all, which hurts me to my inner core to say it, a two-handicap golfer, Mark Moriarty, <laughs> is there anything you're bad at? I keep asking you. An unbelievable guy, an unbelievable chef, and a phenomenal golfer. It is just, I, honest to God, there has to be, I have to get my hands on Grania. There's got to be something he's useless at, you know? Yeah, I'm sure if you spoke to her, there'd be plenty. <laughs> yeah, it's always the way I find Maybe right podcast, and we'll see you now yeah. in a minute. Yeah, we I should have told you to bring Grania with you. There's nothing like a wife to bring you right back down to, to earth. You're very welcome, Mark, it's brilliant to have you in. Gareth being the top dog in Eurotalks for many, many years, obviously we would have come across you a good 10, 15 years ago when I was in the height of my time in, in Viewmount and Gareth and the Marion, even before his time in the marker. You've won that, I believe. I think you, you got to the final of the Young Chef of the Year a couple of times and did you win it eventually or yeah, I'm trying to remember? First I did it was 2012. Yeah. Came second and then went and won it in 2013 off the learnings of yeah. 2012. Like, yeah. When I was young. When I was yeah. young. Younger. A long yeah. time ago. Yeah, and I, well, I mean, I don't know if it's something you want to chat about, but I suppose it's one thing synonymous with kitchens. Like, I, I know you first kind of came on my radar. I remember talking to you, it might have been the Taste of Dublin or somebody else, and I remember you saying, like, you were going into the greenhouse in the morning, either before school or before college. I was trying mm-hmm. to think, and I thought, Jesus, that's unbelievable. You know, I mean, I, you know, we're a, that bit, I mean, a good 10, 15 years older than you, I think, and it, it was common enough, I think, for guys and girls our age is like you would see a lot of that you you maybe don't see as much of people applying themselves to that level anyways 
anymore. Of course, there's still plenty of it, but you certainly stood out to me as somebody right from the very first day I talked to you. I was like mature beyond your years, and you, you seemed to have a goal of where you were taking your career right from being when you were a teenager, yeah? Yeah, I think uh, drive is definitely something I've very much focused on. It's kind of setting out goals, putting a plan together to get to that goal and, and just going and doing it. I think it's one of those industries you'll probably know, lads, it's it's not an industry or a job you want to be doing just to be kind of floating about in and seeing where it takes you. You need to know where you're going, why you're going there, what you want to do and, 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 go, and go and put a plan in place to do it. Otherwise, you know, we've all met these chefs and I suppose it's relevant to any industry doesn't matter what you do who are kind of just doing it and letting the years pass by and if that's what you're like I always said if that's what you want to do there's definitely easier ways yeah. to go and make a living than in this one uh, um, I've, I've always you know, said but the other thing I think that needs to be said because I feel this gets bandied around a good bit around the chefing industry just because there's a good few chefs that have a voice but anybody that's at the pinnacle of whatever they do be it builders you know lawyers doctors there's a lot of graft goes in, like you know, and I mm. and I still think to get to the, the anywhere near the top or to do well in the chefing industry, it's the early years is where it's going to really shape Very what goes so. on in the latter years. Oh, I think what is changing, and I'm, I think Mark, I know you've spoken about this in the past, but there's certainly smarter ways to work. It's not just sheer hours, you know, and I think corporate business now, I think, has really kind of put manners on a lot of kitchens that were taking advantage of people that's what was going on yeah. but I really feel now with, with the leaders that are running kitchens now across the world I don't think it's just happening in Ireland that people are to get the most out of your people you have to dial into them as people and to, mm. when you when you start dialing into them as people you realise actually you know what they they have other hobbies they have families they have and then when you start letting the reins off and giving people a bit more time to themselves you get much more bang for your book as an employer Oh, okay. um, and I think well, that's what's happening so yeah, two things annoy me on that I'd love to know what you, your take on it number one is people feeling that they want to just be successful without sort of doing the hard yards and the graft you can't just walk into the kitchen and be the head chef you can't just walk into the business and be the CEO um, there is I don't know it, maybe it's a bit of a generalisation but there are a lot of younger people coming through now who don't appreciate the hard work and the goal setting to get to the very very top there's this sort of Instagram social media mentality well I see it on there and I, sh yeah. I should just deserve that I, I'm, potentially I'm owed a living that annoys me then on the flip side of that, another thing annoys me is, I suppose, the underestimation of younger people. And there's this kind of, you hear a lot of media now across all industries. It's like the snowflake generation and the, oh, well, uh, little Mark or Gareth or Gary there is just out of college and they think they should just be now doing this or that. Um, but there's also a lot of people, younger people who work their arses off. And they they will demand this work-life balance, which I actually admire. Because for me, work-life balance isn't I want to work want very little off. and want loads of money for it. Yeah. For me, it's people will give a serious amount of effort and time. But like you mentioned there, and Gary, you'll be familiar with it, it's offering them some sort of flexibility to pursue the different interests of their lives. Because everyone has your professional life and you have your personal life. And they're intertwined. That's the, the new general, that's how the world works now. And like you said there, I've no problem, say, doing four and a half days a week or five days a week mm. if it means that I have the flexibility for those two days off to do my other interests. I've no problem working 90 hours in four days 
if I know that in those other three days I can spend time with my family or my wife or play the golf or do the sport or go to the gym or whatever it is. And that flexibility in the workplace allows my personal life to be better and vice versa, the flexibility to achieve things in my personal life makes me better when I am there in the workplace. And you'll probably see it. And I think that word work-life balance often just gets thrown out by people saying, oh, that's the young crowd who just don't want to work anymore. So I know those points are kind of the same, but they're actually yeah, both well, ends of the spectrum. You know, I, I, I have a re- I, I don't know whether it's an interesting take or not, but I, I have a take that surprised myself, which came quite late in life, where I got a huge offer to go in as a director of a company on a Monday to Friday. And I mean, I was exactly, I was a month shy of 10 years in Viewmount. Like I, I had been there for 10 years. It was incredibly successful. I had been just come back from the States over them that period of time. Life was just amazing. And, you know, just the job is like, I'm never, I never want to work anywhere else. I never want to cook anywhere else. Then I ended up getting this life changing offer and going Monday to Friday. And I would have, I would have always been the chef. I wouldn't say like the diehard, like oh, I'm all, I'm the man. I work 70, 80 hours a week. I of course I worked really, really hard. But again, I appreciated the fact that I had a lot of radio work and TV stuff for the restaurant and other bits and pieces that I do. Then I started being at home doing bedtime stories. Then I started being home on Saturdays. We had one kid, which then became two. It's now three, but at the time it was two, and. The difference it made to Annette's life and the people around. It was almost as if like this whole world that I had never as a professional that earned money from being a teenager. I had literally never known what it was like to have a life. And I'll tell you, once once you do get a taste of it, everything changes then. Now for me then, I went on to France for the last five years and it was very much... I'm all in over there or I'm all out. I'm, I'm all in with a family when I'm in Ireland and it's all work when I'm gone. But it's very much on my own terms right now. But I see now a lot of really prominent chefs that have worked in the industry and high-end restaurants here and they don't care about the fact that they're now being looked upon as sellouts or whatever. They're just like going, no, the day of work and morning, noon and night at weekends is over. And even we spoke about this a few weeks before Christmas, Mark, when we were golfing about the fact that Ramsey's and most of the big London restaurants, they're all Monday to Friday restaurants now and guys can either work at weekends and Nixers or do this out of the other. But it's definitely a change in industry for sure. When, when I heard you talking about the snowflake era, what I can say from being as involved I am with Eurotalk for as long as I have, every year I get to witness 35, 40 young chefs under 28 years of age coming to enter a competition, most of which have already tried to do it and didn't win it and then they come back the following year and we get probably get 15 new ones and the commitment effort and drive that I see out of that 35 40 people to enter the competition which goes on to the interview stage which Mark I know you've been involved in and so I've never really listened to that snowflake thing I do no. think every industry every I know exactly what you mean when you say it but we're very lucky I think that we work in an industry that we really care about yeah and that's the one thing that I say that you were successful in. though very very young Mark was there a cohort like say a bit older than you that that made you feel like that who are you to be winning young chef of the year or did, did you ever get over no. the fact that you were working in the greenhouse brought credibility almost immediately that nobody even dared Do you know it goes go there? well there was an element of that it goes back to actually before that before any competitions it was like when I got to the point where I, what do you want to do for work mm. and um, like my parents would have been very influential on me in a in a 
they were kind of ahead of their time. They both worked in mental health services. And before it was, I don't know, 20 years ago, we would have had conversations around the dinner table about psychology and and um, potential and how you feel about your self-esteem and how work plays into that. And this was all, now it's the kind of the done thing that you talk about. So I was gaining appre- appreciation of that when I was younger. And then it came to transition year in school. And I had built an interest in food, which had come from an interest in fishing as a kid. And it was like, you know, maybe I'd like to be a chef. And it was my mum pulled me aside and she was like, OK, Mark, basically you're at an age now, 15, 16, where you can, you're lucky enough, you've been given the opportunities and the education where you can kind of, you're not, you're not stupid. Like I wasn't acing exams or anything like that, mm. but it was like, you can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it. Mm. Um... And don't let anyone tell you you can't do anything. That was very much a thing I would have got at the dinner table. And it was, but it was then on the flip side, it was like, you need to go out and see what you don't like and what you like. And whatever you do, you need to work your ass off because you ain't going to be successful without that. And there was a piece of like, you know, you can have talent, but unless you work hard with that talent, you're never going to succeed. And actually the hard worker will probably beat the talented person if they don't work hard. Oh yeah. So always remember that. And uh, I sent off a a letter then, I sent off 10 letters in transition year, 15 years of age, to what I considered to be the 10 best restaurants in Ireland at the time. Because I decided, you know what, I'd like to see what being a chef is like. Three of them wrote me back a letter and I went into my work experience in them for... I look, I took kind of only three got months. back. I've met all the seven who didn't, and I would have wrote to you. What an asshole! I wasn't even. One of I them. got a letter. Imagine, did you? You were still in Boston. You were still in Boston. And I had a and I had a brilliant experience in these restaurants, and it kind of was like. Now I thought it was the best job in the world. I basically. I bet you Nevin wrote to you. I, I went to Nevins, yeah. yeah. I had, had my first glass of wine in Nevins. Cool. Um, in the staff dig. I beat you charged you for it too. The man, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no. man Nevins. But I, and I thought it was the best job in the world. I sat in the past, I ate the food, whatever, blah, yeah. blah. But then what actually happened after that was my parents <clears throat> saw, okay, he's kind of into this now. And look, they would never have wished for me to be a chef because it came with a certain stereotype in life. But they weren't going to get in the way of the interest. Then I got a, a real job in the charity house in Dingle on my yeah. summer holidays, and it was like, oh, okay, now this is this is Jesus summer in Dingle. It was hot relentless. and heavy, I'd say, relentless and like inexperienced. Like I had no training whatsoever. Yeah. I was sixteen years of age. It was hey, would, th- those years though, when you're in it, like I was dinings in Donegal Seaside Resort. I know you're very familiar with dinings, Marco, but some crack. Isn't it oh. like you know, no mortgage, no worries in the world, just working like a madman. And you only appreciate it to get a bit older. Ah, yeah, back. you really do. Um, what was it? Where where were you working? What did you say? Chart house and Dingles. It was a bit more man. I started off first Art. summer basically <laughs> the weird muscles. Do, yeah, yeah. No, no, straight doing the desserts, helping cool. with the pot wash. Yeah, love and helping with the side. Who owns the main that course. place again? Jim McCarthy. I feel bad. Sorry, now Jim, I should know that because I, I, well, I know his restaurant well. I know. So it's the well. longest running bib gourmand in Ireland. Well, yeah. And Noel Enright was the chef at the time. Oh, I know Noel. Noel, Noel was tough as nails. Yeah. And in hindsight, again, I'd love. I've, I've always said, Jim, I'd love to go back and do a shift. Because I remember it just being so hard at that age to see what it would be like now, having built so much experience. Yeah. But what I learned there very quickly was how to how to season stuff, how to run a taste. section, how to taste, how to all the basics. I could have gone to the fanciest two Michelin restaurant at the time, and I wonder where I would end up now. Yeah. Because that's all well and good, but you have to be at a, a certain period. Whereas that was the best place for me to be at. The I point. only associated you with the greenhouse. Actually, I I, I never. 
and you until quite recently. You seem to have quite a special relationship there with Mick, but from you know the outside looking, yeah. in, and I think yeah. he's really mentored you. I think, and that's what I want to find out now. It was one of my that's questions. Michael Bellianon from yeah, the Greenhouse sorry. for yeah, the yeah, listeners. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so we, so I, I was working in, I was working in a Mission Star restaurant in Dublin in 2012, and there was, how, how long have we got? There is a very good story on this. Okay, we were. Oh, I was in, I was in Laura's yours. I was in Carbrew Street doing culinary arts. Education was a big part of everything I've done. So when I was with Kevin Thornton in, in um, transition year, he told me, go to college as well as... Good advice. Because he was always like, yeah, you know, like, he's probably looking at me going, yeah, you'll you'll probably be a chef for a couple of years. But then, and then it was like, make sure you have a thing to back it up. So I just did my culinary arts degree. And while I was working in culinary arts, I worked, went back and worked for Kevin for two years. And um, we used to, we were sent out in placement in first year. And you do your five weeks, you'll have had them all from yeah. Cobra Street. Whatever said about college and culinary arts and Cobra Street, I had the best four years of my life and absolute respect. I'm still very friendly with the lectures. Mm. But we were we at the end of our five weeks, we'd come into the last day of college to present on our experience in, in out in industry. And everyone come in and say, Yeah, I worked in um the marker with Garrett, and Garrett was great to me and looked after me, and we had staff lunches and blah 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 blah. And I worked with Gary and Viewman House, and it was brilliant experience and we did the Sunday lunch busy learning loads and I was in Torrance's and blah 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 blah. and then there was a, an unnamed character who decided he was going to go to this place called Gregan's Castle <laughs> in um, County Clare and he looked a bit different after when he came, <laughs> when he came back uh, than when he left and he got up and he kind of spoke very quietly and said I went to Gregan's Castle and I worked for uh, this chef and um, he uh, yeah he he it was it was it was brilliant and it was also very difficult at the same time and he proceeded to describe this in 15 minutes this amazing restaurant doing all these this mad food and at the time it was like moon food it was yeah, yeah. Like, this stuff and eventually he it, it wasn't for him and after 3 weeks he decided to uh, plan his escape on a wednesday <laughs> evening and I think they were in the staff digs. They were all staying. but And he said he jumped on his bike at 3am and he cycled to Doolan. And he said all he could think of cycling through the dark the dark fields was that headlights would appear behind yeah. him. Yeah. And he might, the chef in question might have copped on. And only he said when he was outside the county bounds, did he ring back the chef and say, I'm, gone. I'm not coming back, you're gone. And everyone, I remember everyone in the lectures were just going, like horrified. Horrified, because their job is like, student protection yeah oh my god and all the students were like and I was like I gotta work for this guy (laughs) (laughs) and it just so happened that around that time um, Michael the chef was moving up to to the greenhouse and dumped to open it and I ended up moving from Thornton's over and it was amazing to be I worked there for two years as part of like from when we opened and it's like any restaurant that opens it was the big place at the time it yeah. was crazy blah 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 I went then things happened in my career and I come back five years later from Australia and I go okay well where to, where's the best place to work now and it was still it was still, still there green. now one thing I would say about him as and people and as mad as he is he's incredibly passionate he was exceptionally good to me because as I, I've done TV and books and a lot of chefs at that level would say, well, this is my restaurant, this is my name, and everyone else just is faceless and keep your mouth shut, do the work, and w- would rightfully take all the glory. And he wasn't like that. He would he allowed me, and obviously very public-facing, but would always mention all the people that worked with him mm. and for him. And it wasn't oh, just I... the Michael show, yeah. it was the team. And any time yeah. there was an award, he would either wouldn't go or he'd put everyone else up there. And for one reason, he's 
quite a shy guy in public, but also he genuinely cared about. Yeah. Do you know what? Well, he's not stupid. He, he there's you can't do that level of detail without without sharing the love and keep and keep. I mean, to train a squad of chefs to stay at that level day after day, week after week. And to stay with week, them. And to stay with them, yeah, month after month. Like, of course, you got to share that. you got to share that love. And anybody that doesn't is foolish. You know, another common denominator you'd have with a lot of chefs, he went through Paul Flynn's. I mean, I think Paul Flynn's probably one of the best palates in the country. An unbelievable chef too. I think Michael worked there as a first job. Yeah. I mean, he was in a hotel in Athlone, but his first proper job in Ireland, I believe, was the yeah. tannery, working with Paul. I mean, David Hurley came through that kitchen as yeah. well. Um, the guy that's in Homestead and Doolin now, uh, Robbie, Robbie, went yeah. through there. Again, you go back to, like, you could say the same about Derry Clark and Ross, like, over the years, you know what I mean? Like, there's hardly a chef. Derry had a famous Gitafi prawn dish, I think. He... Somebody came on it in Sydney one day to read it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was a Derry Clark dish. You know what I mean? And I suppose all the all the greats do inspire a whole other wave of people. Then you know. But I have to say, like I could right before Michael went to the greenhouse, like for that winter, we did an around the world in eighty flavors dinner, and I had him in the kitchen in Viewmount for three or four days, and just what, listening to him talking about seasoning and salt and whatever. I mean, everything. Everything is measured. Like it's just, he's just a mad professor, you know. Like a phenomenal chef. And it's been amazing to see progression as well of for being in a restaurant in the first two years, subsequently coming back to get to that two star level. Vault. Completely different restaurant, and I've yeah. learned a lot from seeing the evolution of a restaurant and actually learning. Because I would then, when I do eventually open up, I've learned a lot quicker from seeing how someone else does it. And kind of cutting out the maybe wasted years of trying different things that weren't going to work. But that's it's a very much a part of the process, I think. You know, and I think until you open your own restaurant and you make the mistakes, and yeah, look, I mean, I've just reopened the restaurant now in the hotel. It's we've rebranded it, and you know, and I'm a different cook to what I was ten years ago when I got the job at the marker. And some of the food I was cooking back then, I sometimes look back at it and scratch my head. What's, oh, the, what, what's the difference between 10 years ago and what you're doing now? Well, his, name, his name's over the door. For <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's bank balance. It's, it's security, Mark, I think. And I don't yeah. mean that in a... From a food perspective. Yeah, I don't mean that in a financial sense. I'm just more confident about yeah. the cook that I am and the integrity that I have around food. And I'm not embarrassed to say that, but what I've really learned over the last 10 years, and I'd put... Eurotalk has a huge part of this because it's the, the company that I spend my professional time it, it, with. It's it's always comes back down to the ingredients and the produce. And I knew that back then, right? Because I came out of Marion who used amazing produce. But I wasn't, I was the head chef at their restaurant, but I wasn't the exec chef. I wasn't making all the calls. And then when I went into the marker, you know, we were a new business. You're really focusing on the figures all the time. And so I, every decision I was making, there was always a little bit of a financial decision. As with it should it. be. As it should be. But then, you then as you as you go on a little bit, you go, no, I have to use that beef, or I have to use yeah. those oysters, or I have to use that caviar, whatever it is. That and I'm, charge yeah. for it. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a, that also comes with time because... You know, you have to find your place in the market where you slot in, and um, you know we have, we're have the accolades to back it up. Well, a little you, bit. Well, little also bit. when you start charging customer. and you start adding supplementations, if if it's a necessity and things like that, I think with age, 
people trust you. Like when when you're developing a reputation over time, and you you know whether it's you and the marker or me, whatever, or yourself, any chef really, time that the public trusts you. And if you haven't been fleecing them for ten or fifteen or twenty years, and all of a sudden a dish appears, if it's the beef you want to use or the caviar you want to use, and it is a wee bit more money, one well then I think. You're confident to stick it on there, but equally they're looking at it going, well, look, it'll be good if he's buying it, it's worth the money. The thing I love there that encompasses that point is the Michelin Guide, which everyone's familiar with, and it has the whole pizzazz, and it is, for me, it's still the ultimate guide. But now with all these TV shows, everyone knows the Michelin Guide. What annoys me about it is it doesn't take in the kind of economic sense of the restaurant. So there's a lot of like places who'll win these accolades, win two or three stars, but the restaurant will never make money and it'll come and go and it doesn't really offer anything to the the economy and the jobs yeah, get lost. And it's like, okay, well, as a Michelin guide, surely you should be taking into account the sustainability of the restaurant, the sustainability of the staff. So it's like, I far more respect for, say, a, an 80-seater restaurant in a city, a competitive city, with one Michelin star doing lunch and dinner five days a week then the ones that get more media which might be on top of a mountain yeah, serving yeah. eight people and look it's a great two story nights week, yeah. two nights a week but like what's the point of it yeah. in the economic sense because yeah it's great and you get loads of PR and but like the people who work there the restaurant's going to be closed in three years and then they're going to be out of a job whereas the one that's offering something to the local economy and I, it's the only thing I wish with Michelin that it took into account more the economic sustainability of a restaurant when well, it's, it's awarding its a good point. Stars. I mean, the one thing about Michelin was the Bib Gourmand was always very financially controlled, you know, with the three courses, the 40 quid. I don't know how that stands nowadays. Well, I'd sooner eat there if I'm travelling in a Bib Gourmand than a than Well, any, any chef would nearly tell you the same. Chefs love Bib Gourmand restaurants, you know, because it really is Michelin cooking, like not so much on a budget, but certainly there was always that... The value. Value, value piece, you know what I mean? It's getting harder and harder. Dishing it out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Cully and Sully. Now is the perfect time to dig into a Cully and Sully risotto. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. Dishing it out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins, a Go Loud original podcast. Cully and Sully squashed veggie soup is in season and the perfect warming meal. Go Loud. Sounds better with us. And come here, what about this part of your career now? Because it seems to have taken a very, I mean, you've just won Cook Book of the Year. Or it's Book yeah. of the Year you won, right? Cook Book of the Year. Not Book of the Year. Well, you no, never not, know. not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was that? Um, was that a surprise or did you think you had it? No, uh, no. well, is a surprise, yeah. Well, yeah, because I'd never done a cookbook. So like to... Your first to I was working in restaurants. I was... I, I am very ambitious, but it was all mission stars, fine dining, blah, 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 blah. And that, look, it might still be the case down the road. But then as I've gotten a bit older and experiences, I've broadened the kind of things I do as a chef I've expanded myself from sous chef at the greenhouse to chef TV host author um, and that was very pointed that doesn't just come about because you willy nilly rock into it COVID accelerates it because obviously you're out of a job and you go okay how do I manoeuvre and make something of this anything I do I can't help my competitive side so it doesn't matter if I'm I don't know cleaning the kitchen at home on the Saturday I want to make sure it's done right Proper. <laughs> if I do, if I do a cookbook, I want it to be 
the best cookbook. If I do a documentary on RT called Beyond the Menu, I want it to be the best documentary showcase that's ever been done in Ireland. Or if it's the off-duty chef, it's very competitive market, but I'd like to think people go, that's the one I'd tune into if I had a choice. Now, it, not, it doesn't always work out like that, but that's the mentality going into it. It doesn't matter what I'm well, doing, you, I have to do it You can tell, to be fair to you, Mark, there's no two ways about it, that that's exactly how it comes across. You know what I mean? Even the show you had before Christmas, brilliant as well. It's not your first special, I don't think. You've had a couple of different... We've done one, them. Yeah, 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 yeah you've yeah. done one before, you know. And what about going beyond the shores of Ireland then any plans UK America or well it's always in the in the plans is that you'd like to think if something's of a certain quality that it will yeah. travel we do design particularly the TV shows so we've a deal set up where they after they get shown in Ireland they go around the world so presently the last series of Off Duty Chef is shown in Canada Australia Hong Kong across the Middle East North Africa um, a rush in the Baltics actually is seems to be big which is great to a sense because you're starting to like I made a conscious decision seven, eight years ago I was going to build brand Mark Moriarty and that might sound arrogant but there's reasons for that um, and then this year we're hoping to really put a press on in terms of the US market so we've got a series coming up of guest dinners with the team of the Dead Rabbit in oh, New well. York. Cool. Um, hopefully tie that into Patrick's Day because look, I've done Saturday Kitchen. I've done a lot of work in the UK. It's always about it's always about getting better, better, better every day, week, month, year. And part of that plan would definitely be outside of Ireland. But I'm like, what am I? I just turned thirty two, so I have certainly set up new goals for the second yeah. for the thirty to forty, which would include a lot of that. But all very much based around food still. Always food, yeah, yeah. yeah. And look, I've, and, I've, and is there a restaurant in? in there is a, that? as I do inverted commas here with my fingers, restaurant. So, my plan is basically looking for, been looking for the premises now for two years. Um, it takes a lot of learnings of what I've seen, but also the work I do. I do a lot of work behind the scenes with big brands and corporate that people wouldn't see. Yeah. Um, and it's to open up a, a kitchen studio, five days a week, Monday to Friday. And you, you can, I'd like to your opinion on this. So, f- five days a week, Monday to Friday. Open for the public on a Thursday, Friday night. A thousand square foot, 16 seat counter kitchen, seats around the kitchen. So for the public on a Thursday, Friday, it's two turns, around 30 people. Um, a pretty small payroll of between six and eight people, both front and back of house. And then to be able to bring in house and kind of a mark my already HQ of all the work I'm already doing. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is all the private dining I'm doing at the moment, the corporate right. dining, the brand work. So if like Mercedes-Benz want to come in and showcase their new car through food, we basically create a menu that tells yep. the story of that, yeah. whatever brand it might be. It also means I can bring the TV shows in-house, the photography for the books in-house, create content for different brands in-house. That, that's all, that'll just come down to location, right? Just, oh, yeah. yeah I'll tell you, I, right away it jumps out to my head. There's the wealth management division at Deutsche Bank in London. I've done a dinner in there. I'll tell you, if you ever get a chance, I make a few calls, get you in there. Because yeah. there's, there's a there's a one-two chef premises in there. And it's just, it turns into like this chef's theatre. But you, that's where, I suppose, the reason why you want to do Fridays and Saturdays is guaranteed revenue. Like, it'll know that you'll sell those seats and... No, well, it'll be closed Saturday, Sunday. Oh, sorry, you mean uh, Thursdays and Fridays? Like yeah. you're gonna open it for dinner those two nights, so yeah, it'll so be... it's still technically a restaurant. But yeah. tell you the reason behind this, not because I don't want to work that hard. I'll always work my ass off. It's for me the key is location that isn't gonna cost a shed load of money on your yeah. lease. 
payroll that's manageable because I don't need two and a half thousand square feet because I've got to pay loads of people to service it, which mm. I don't want. So if I can control those two things, it also means we have a very small pool of chefs in this country. We have a smaller pool of them that are really talented. Yep. They're the ones I'm after. Don't have much of a reputation to back it up. So I go, what's my USP? As we say, it's employees market. So if someone has a lineup of offers. <clears throat> why would you go work for Mark Moriarty? Well, you'll be off Saturday, Sunday. We'll give you a competitive salary with everyone else with benefits. And you know what? It'll be a restaurant Thursday, Friday where we'll do our seasonal menu, which is tasting, which are... But one Monday we could be doing oh, yeah. Deutsche Bank and I mean, the next week we could be doing about a brand the learnings that somebody gets from, from that you know what I mean like seeing so yeah what yeah. you need is a, another ambitious young Mark Moriarty working with you that that wants to go down that road themselves of not just being a restaurant chef the thing is now but that, like, there is that there you know, and I even think in corporate catering, we've all seen the shift in the standard of what's in corporate yeah. catering. So the job as a chef is not just it's not running. defined. It? Exactly, it's not defined. And I think now, what, I think I've proven that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I think there's loads of examples of that across our industry yeah. here in Ireland. And I think so you take that corporate chef that people are moving into, and you spoke yeah. about it at the start that that sellout idea that's disappeared. Okay, this would be, I would hope, it's that idea but the very, very top end of it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it offers that kind of lifestyle, that little bit of difference each week, but why not win a, a, a Michelin star for a kind of a, a private dining studio? Yeah, but right you are, because I mean, look, you work as hard as you've worked and you want to do it on your own terms. And at the same time, you thoroughly enjoy, it seems, you know, the likes of that, you know, looking forward to going to New York, working with the Dead Rabbit guys. I mean, you're in Edinburgh constantly with Johnny yeah. Walker or the Diageo crew, whoever it is. I mean... You don't want to have to stop all of that either and feel yourself closed I'd in. Be foolish and, and, to. Yeah, be foolish to peg yourself in. And now all of a sudden it's just like you're in the restaurant, you're a prisoner to your own f- four walls in a restaurant, which would be a nightmare. We always ask our guests to wrap up. We always get them to bring in a cookbook. I was Mark the, will have brought something. I was well, I was on the phone say. to Gareth on the way <laughs> on the way down the road. He goes, What do you think he's gonna bring in? Gas. I says, I don't know, but he'll probably need a backpack for it. I didn't bring my own book. <laughs> I said what I he says, will yeah, bring I, his I, own I book. Says, I'll says, blade and guarantee he brings says, his own well, book. I says, if he's anything like me, <laughs> I would have brought my own book just to annoy me to annoy you boys. So what, he's handed me what have one you of brought? the largest, biggest Bibles that's out there. By none other than Heston Blumenthal. So it's the Fat Duck Cookbook. And for those of you that aren't familiar... Made famous Duck. because of a great, the greatest, one of the greatest chefs in the country, Donegal man, Derek Cray, is one of his main guys. Really? Oh, aye. Absolutely. The original crew. Derek Cray, Derek Cray is part of the original crew, probably one of the, the most beautiful cooks you will ever come across. And whenever Heston had his recent... Um, was it a 25 or 30 year anniversary. celebration anniversary? They brought back the original crew and Derek was there. Yeah, he's from Donegal. He's, a, he's an unbelievable guy. Brilliant And chef. I suppose like from, from a professional chef's point of view over the last 20 years or whatever, Heston really start releasing. It went from Nouvelle Cuisine into uh, the, the heights of gastronomy and he's yeah. the one that was doing all the technical stuff. And now there's a reason why I brought this in. Like it's not so, this is, this is not a book. Gareth's holding in front of me here. It's like, it's, a, it's like I think it was 180 quid in 2008. Oh, I was just going to say, released. how many beans did that cost? It was yeah. Santa Claus brought that for me when I was <laughs> 14 or 15. Yeah. Really? Yeah, that was my Santa Claus present. So, like when I got in, I spoke about that period of where well, you're very impressionable in your teens, and I was thinking about work and that I'm going to be a, a chef. And 
what attracted me to Hessen Blumenthal was a couple of things. At the time in 2004, he had just won his third Michelin star. He was the number one restaurant in the world. I love the fact Gareth's flicking through it here um, in front of us. And actually, it's it's nearly 20 years old, this book, but the food looks still like, looks relevant. It still looks relevant. The reason I... And I used to look at open this book wow. and it was like going into space and it was like, wow. And I remember thinking that like this job could was incredibly creative it was mad you could do anything the food was like now you'd never recreate anything in this but what also attracted me to it was I used to watch Heston's programs on the BBC at the time which were in search of perfection and he's yeah, recently I love that after that he released Heston Blumenthal at home so when I look at my career and where I've actually landed now Heston was my hero because not only was he the number one chef in the world with three Michelin stars but he also appealed with his casual offering to like my mum and dad who'd watch it at home. He would do the documentary Christmas specials which were on the TV and you'd go, oh my God, look at the creativity. And I've kind of ended up in a place where I do the, like I'm nowhere, will never be anywhere like that sort of revolutionary chef, but I'm kind of known for the fine dining, yeah. but also been able to communicate to a wider audience on RT and do a documentary showcasing the best Irish talent on Beyond the Menu. And that's why I picked that book today because it kind of sums up where I've somewhat, it, the kind it, of road I've gone down. Incredible, isn't it? Unbelievable. Yeah. I tell you, don't... And you know what, you know the other tradition of the podcast is that you gift the book to either Gary <laughs> or Ronnie. <laughs> Who's getting... <laughs> can rip a page out each <laughs> if you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we keep the <laughs> That's beautiful. And, and, and you know what, he just sold another one because I'm going to go and buy that. And that... Yeah. Was, that I, for, I never... I, I haven't seen this before. No, but that, it, that for me on there, that book arrived Christmas... Day, went downstairs and got lost. I never got my head out of that book for yeah, two years. That. And that was at the time where it was like, I could do anything in this job. I could. Yeah. And it was that sort of potential within have, it. Have you been to the Fat Doc? Have you been? No, I haven't been. Uh, I've... Yeah, I've been to dinner a couple of times, the Mandarin Orient. Yeah, so. yeah. It's my big, one of my biggest regrets that I just could never get over, never afford to go, or it yeah. just wasn't. It, it oh, was yeah, just below before Tom my time. carriages in, uh, in the uh, Hand and Flowers, which is just yeah. up the road from it. And we were planning to do the fat duck as well, and we couldn't get a table. So, and at the time, I was looking at wherever I was working at the time, we were looking at a concept, and it just made more sense to go to look at what Tom yeah. Carriage was doing. But, but on top of that, that um, in search of perfection by Heston Lumenthal for me, and I watch a lot of TV shows for work. Yeah, is still the best yeah, cookery so program well I've ever. Oh, it was unbelievable. Seen on TV. But yeah. I, does it translate to everybody? You know, like I get why you would enjoy it so much, probably for the same reasons I do. It's because of the levels of detail and that's I think it does translate because not, and I, I've seen a lot of it similar. Well, the communication is similar in what I've ended up doing is the difference between Hess and all the other chefs that would make a spaghetti bolognese. Yeah, yeah. He would always explain yeah, why. Yeah, the reason. Yeah, yeah. What, what a chef, no? What a... Ah, yeah. And come here, Mark, through the form, we said that he'll bring in something that either has two or three stars. So you went with the three stars. So <laughs> look, fair play. Mark, you've been a, a brilliant chef for someone's career that I've been looking at through the years and uh, a good pal. And uh, I wish you every success in what you do, which I'm sure will... We'll just keep reaching for the stars, man, because that's what you're about. So, Thank you very much. Thanks so much for coming in, Gary. Yeah, thanks, Mark. We're all very proud of you, I have to say, mate. You've you've really stood out from the crowd from the first day I met you. And, uh, and you know, I know you're very tight with your mommy and daddy, as anybody should. You're a man that likes to, to make them proud. I'm sure they are. But I, ha I really mean it when I say it. Like, I, I haven't seen a young chef 
impress me as much as you and I'm 30 years in the business and uh, good chance to Dishing it out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins a Go Loud original podcast Cully and Sully squashed veggie soup is in season and the perfect warming meal Go Loud sounds better with us so we're going to do our questions of the week here and we've got two crackers at the coming in. So we'll go with the first one. Hey lads, love the podcast. I recently bought a pasta attachment for my KitchenAid after hearing you talk about it a few weeks ago and I'm loving it. Have you any recipe ideas for some interesting sauces so I can take full advantage of my new skill? Nathan in Athlone. Oh, deadly. Yeah, so he doesn't need any recipes for pasta then. There is nothing better than making your own pasta. I think it's one of the it's one of the best. Once you do it once, it's it's a great it's proper rainy afternoon stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And again, whatever it is like about all the action that's going on with it, the kids just love it. I've got attachments as well for I don't know, it's a, a K mix or whatever it is that I have. But all those stand mixers nowadays have have that wee PTO, and you can add mincers onto them and the pasta machines onto them. And, you know, you can play around with the shapes. As, fa- as far as sauces go, I, I love I love an, an, a good Provencal sauce, like a tomato sauce, you know what I mean? There's there's plenty of little quick pan sauces you you can do. Like, I mean, look up cashew a pepe, like it's a black pepper, pasta water, a couple of parmesan. Carbonara, again, is another quick one. Egg yolks, grated parmesan. You're going to be using pasta water again. Really, really quick one. But I, I'll give you a nice little simple 400 gram tin Provencal recipe that that I think is is a brilliant go to. And basically, you're going to heat up um, a heavy base saucepan, couple decent drizzle of olive oil. Finely dice two shallots and finely crush or slice two cloves of garlic. Sweat that without colour, decent little bit of seasoning, salt and white pepper. And once you have that softened, add about a glass of white wine. Let that reduce by more than half. And then open a good tin of of chopped tomatoes. And tinned tomatoes are one of the few ingredients in a tin that I would advocate for. They're, They're canned and they're cooked and they're put in there in their absolute best form. And there's loads of different, the Roma ones are brilliant, the Moody ones are really, really good. I'm sure you by this stage, you have your own favorites. But again, put in either a plum tomato or a chopped tomato can. They're 400 gram tins in on top of that. Give it a good mix and then season it really, really well. At this stage, then you want to bring it to the boil and turn it down to a simmer. Um, and what I do is I, I have a bit of rule of thumb, about 50 minutes to one hour. Just let that plop. Giving it a mix every five minutes with a wooden spoon. You just want to brush the wooden spoon off the base of the pot to make sure that nothing is sticking, okay? Then you're going to take a good handful of fresh basil and chiffon at it up. And what I mean by that is you're going to slice it really, really thinly and you put it in. So I would even go as far as saying a full pot, one of those little pots that you'll buy in Tesco or Dunn's, just rip the full head clean off it, chiffon add up every leaf. There's a couple of wee bits of stems in there. Do not worry about it at all. Take it from the top, thinly slice, mix that in to the tomato sauce. And now you're going to taste, taste, taste. And 
you know, at the beginning, if you want to have a wee bit of spice in that, you could add like a half a teaspoon of a dried chili powder into that half as well. Chili powder, eh? yeah, or not chili powder, <laughs> but chili flakes. Um, if you want a wee bit of heat with it, but that's a that's a lovely little simple Perfect. pasta provencal sauce. And I like what you've said there, Gary, and I think that's a really important trick, especially with fresh pasta. It's adding in a ladle full of that pasta water. So yeah. when you come to reheating that dish. You're going to blanch your freshly made tagliatelle or parpadelli or linguine or whichever shape you've rolled through your pasta machine. And you'll just throw it into the pan with a little bit of olive oil and a, a small ladle. So you're talking about 80 mils of the pasta water. in, And then you put in a couple of spoonfuls of that wonderful tomato sauce that Gary just said. And you're going to just shake the pan and move it around. And what happens is the flour that's in the fresh pasta will slightly thicken the sauce a little bit. And as you finish cooking out that pasta into the sauce, you'll see that the sauce will have disappeared. Then it's going to ask you, without asking you, to just throw in another, another quarter of another an little bit, yeah. And then what I like to do, a knob of butter, another little bit of splash of oil, a little bit of parmesan cheese and into a bowl. And then that white wine that you open to make the sauce, <laughs> pour yourself another glass of that <laughs> and away you go. <laughs> it's one of the things that I love making is fresh a fresh sauce. A, like, a, like a pan, say a cashew pepe, when you think of the simplistic nature of it, but at the same time, all the science that's happening. There's a lot of understanding. There's needs. a lot of understanding heat, isn't there? And like that, that cooking liquor, that water, you're like thinking, oh, it's just water. But no, it's not just water. Like it's got that starch in there and it's all going to bind the sauce together beautifully. You know, Someone stopped me in the hotel the other day. To, they were telling me they were making carbonara and they, were, they just told me it kept going wrong. So I asked them to explain the process <laughs> to me. And like after they added in the egg mixture with the cheese, they were still had it on the stove. And oh, I was no. like, "That's what you're, all you're doing is making scrambled eggs." So the minute you get to that point, take it off the heat, keep it moving, use your pasta water to to get the silky. You can see how that would happen, though. Yeah, like when but they, it's like, a technique that needs to be learned, like well, anything. I say this all the time with workmen coming to the house. I mean, I am absolutely useless at everything, apart from <laughs> cooking. That I've, I've done a fairly decent job of making a decent living out of out of cooking. But like, I never underestimate like even hanging a picture, wiring a plug. I mean, I can do nothing. So <laughs> when there's when there's simple wee jobs that got there, there's there's give so us a much, ring, I'll go and give but, you a hand. Yeah, but there's still there's so much there's so so much knowledge behind the simplest of yeah, dishes. Yeah, yeah. And Italian cookery is one cuisine that really brings simplistic to the fore. But there's just so much behind it to, that makes it look simple, you know? But even talking to Mark and the book that he brought in, you know, and you could see his eyes lighting up when he I was know. talking about it. He's a gasser, he, isn't he? Yeah, but he enjoys the technique. Yeah. And I always find when you talk to a real cook, that's what they really get excited about. Like when you figure out that that pasta water is the thing that's actually going to elevate the texture of that pasta dish, then you go... And then obviously you could, you could see it in his eyes. He brought himself right back to whatever when age, he whatever age he was in 2014. There. I'm looking at him, and I I could picture his head <laughs> on Christmas morning, knee deep in that book. Yeah, yeah. Then, he really just yeah. What a good guy, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. What a chef, man. Yeah, and a decent cat. I really meant that when I said that we're proud of him. You know, like it's brilliant to see somebody like that. That's just you know so dialed into where they want their career to go to and we all want them to open a restaurant he's the type type of place 
that he'll put he I know from being around him he's put so much thought into and he's just explained to us there today as well that it'd be a, a great place to go and, and visit when it does open. So best of luck to him. Right. Next question, is it? Yes, please. Okay, so I would love to know if you had any simple and yummy fakeaway ideas to make on a Saturday night. I love ordering from my local Chinese takeaway, but it's become so expensive lately. Wouldn't mind trying my hand at making it myself. Thank you, Louise in Kildare. Gaz, any fakeaway recipes going there? Do you know my favourite fakeaway type thing to make at the moment is this gochujang chicken. Oh, and I sh- I shared it on all over it. It's so good. Man. Oh man! And do you know what? Do you know what I like so much about it is that. There's so much flavour in it that even the, the poorest of cooks, I think, will get a good dish at the end of it. Yeah, so, so gochujang is just a, it's a Korean fermented pepper paste. That, unbelievable. That if you've ever had Korean fried chicken, you've had gochujang. So I, I actually um, I actually stuck this recipe up my Instagram there before. Christmas. I must take a look. It, no, it's, a, it's an absolute winner. So all you do is dice up some chicken. I, chicken toy would probably be better, but um, my family like chicken breast, so I use yeah. chicken breast for it. You toss that in a little bit of season and corn flour and then you fry it in a wok just to get it nice and crispy now when you drop it into the wok with a little bit of oil leave it alone because you want the heat to stay and it'll go nice and crispy and then you just take it out and then you need the rest of the ingredients ready there's uh, chopped garlic gochujang paste little bit of orange juice an onion a pepper uh, a little bit of corn flour to thicken it up and some honey and then all you do is you fry off the garlic in a little bit of oil so that just release, release all the aromats of the garlic you then add in the uh, gochujang paste and you cook that. Then you add in the orange juice, the soya, the honey, and then cook that all out. You'll see you'll see it all coming together. And what I will say to you is have a little taste of it at this point because you want to make sure you cook out the garlic because if you don't, yeah. it has that underlying raw garlic. Garlic burps, that, yeah, nightmare. No, it's not nice. And then all you do is just throw, thicken it up with a little bit of corn flour, throw your chicken back into a toss it through, <sighs> and you're left with this red, sticky... Spicy. My kids think it's too spicy, but they keep eating it. And I love <laughs> the fact my my, jo- my daughter George May just be going, Oh, it's a little bit too spicy. And I'm like, Yeah, but it's so delicious. And I she's know. like, Yeah, I know, it's so good. And we serve it, or I serve it at home with some uh, sticky rice. So made like you were making rice for sushi. So you buy the sushi rice. Yeah. You use three parts water to one part rice. The recipe's a little bit different to normal rice that you cook. And you season it with a little bit of mirin that you uh, knock back with some sugar. And it's so delicious. I know. And we sliced raw cucumber and sliced raw carrots. So it's not your traditional, I could have given you a recipe for a spice bag or I could give you a recipe for a curry or whatever. And look, I'm happy to share those recipes. I I mean, as you know, I'm in Paris an awful lot. And one of of my last trips before Christmas, I was actually over for a dinner at at the Ritz. Like there was a few government. Oh, were you? Oh yeah, I was just over at the Ritz. I was invited over. You were slagging me a few weeks ago. Ah, you know, Stunny Gold Boys looked at Roll heavy, you know. Where are we? So, I was just in the Ritz for yeah. Dinner. So <laughs> while I checked into a hotel that was not the Ritz <laughs> in the arsehole of Paris, <laughs> right across, right across the, uh, and I'll always be able to find this gaff because of the hotel I was staying in. Right, literally out the door of the hotel, a tiny little cobbled street, and the door of this Korean gaff. And I just as I was getting out of my Uber at the hotel, I looked left and I went, oh, I like the look of that gaff. Went up and anyway, got the suit on and came down. I thought, geez, I have a few hours to kill, right? And I Real. said, but I'm starving. <laughs> I went into this place anyway and I'm looking at the menu and it was it seemed like a part of the day where 
the, the owner was there, the woman was at the front, there was a wee boy doing homework with her. It was just classic. The whole family seemed to be sitting around. So anyway, she goes, oh, come in, come in, come in. And so I ordered about five or six things from sort of the starter menu, you know. Jesus, guys, I got this <laughs> Korean fried chicken. I will remember it until the day I die. I sat there that day, I had a couple of like Korean beers then as well or whatever. It, it it had to honestly be one of the best food experiences I've ever had in Paris. It was on my own for about an hour. One other dude came in then after a while. I mean, yeah, I thought the place wasn't open, but it was. It was just that sort of 3, 30, 4 o'clock time of day. And I, I ate more little bits and pieces. And then there was a chef taking a break. I was chatting a few of them. One of the two of them were speaking English. You told them I was a chef then. They sat chatting. It was one of the best couple of hours I've ever had in a restaurant in Paris. And it was just this little, like, funky little Korean gaff. So and it was it, the that Jang chicken. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I know that flavor. Because, like, I, I, I make it all the time myself. I get it from the Asian market. I get it delivered. And it's really easy to find because it's in a small little rectangle red tub. Yeah. And uh, it lasts for oh Jesus lot. yeah I mean, it looks like tomato paste sometimes I'm like going I should, pro- like I should probably paste. throw this out like because it's in the, in the fridge six months and then you're like so ah, good looks grand yeah yeah but that <laughs> and I think to elevate uh, I lived in Australia as you know for uh, five and a half six years and I learned an awful lot about Asian cookery while I lived mm. over there not just Thai cookery but Vietnamese cookery and Indian cookery um, and I, I learned all t- all of these different sauces as really the key to that et- ethnic cookery so it's not just sesame oil and soya sauce I think mm. when we were growing up okay. that's kind of what it was but yeah. even the supermarkets now if you haven't got an Asian salt, supermarket salt, sugar, citric acid all of, all of the yeah but go and buy the different types of and if you're um if you're in Ireland and you're around Dublin, there's loads of these markets now. I don't yeah. know what the rest of the country's like, but go in and uh, pick up a few of the different jars of seasons, but keep an eye out for that one. Gotcha, Jang, and you will definitely... Thank us later. You'll have a fake away experience. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dishing at goloudnow.com. We love the questions. Get them into us um, as quick as you can. We've got a bank of them here already, but we're always looking for more. And... Thank you for those great ones this week. Okay, so that's it for this week on Dishing It Out. And what a cracking guest we had uh, this week and Mark. Like, really, really inspirational guy. And I wish him all the best for the future. Not that he needs it. He seems to be doing all right all by himself. But, <laughs> he is, yeah. Um, uh, he's a top dog and, uh, you know, really exciting chef. One to watch. Savage. Great guy, great guy. So, uh, look at... Um, that's it for Dishing It Out this week and Go Loud original podcast. Thanks as always to Cully and Sully. Without that, this uh, supporting this podcast wouldn't happen. So um, thank you. Thanks. Dishing It Out with Gary O'Hanlon and Gareth Mullins. A Go Loud original podcast. Proudly sponsored by Cully and Sully. Deliciously fresh. Tastes like homemade ingredients you find in your kitchen. Go Loud. Sounds better with us.